You've probably heard the news that Elon Musk is buying Twitter. Kinda. Maybe. It's the hottest and messiest relationship drama this side of Riverdale, Elon Musk and Twitter. He took to Twitter earlier this year and made an offer the board couldn't refuse. And in the heat of the moment, Musk tweeted this one melodramatic message. The barbarians are at the gate. Despite what it sounds like, this isn't the name of some Tolkien fantasy novel. It's a phrase lifted from 1980s Wall Street culture, a time of Gucci loafers, brick-sized cell phones, and casual cocaine use. Barbarians is the story of what was at the time the largest, most expensive, nastiest takeover fight in the history of Wall Street. The story has been made into a best-selling book and an extremely soapy made-for-TV movie, both called, appropriately, Barbarians at the Gate. Don't you see this is our last chance? The bastards are at the city gates. Let's stand at the bridge together. Let's stand at the bridge and push the barbarians back. If you had to tell a child about what this book is about, how would you describe it to them? Uh, Timmy, this is about a bunch of grown-ups with lots and lots of money trying to buy the biggest toy they've ever seen. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Palanen. In August of 1988, 34 years ago, one charismatic CEO began to consider an unprecedented decision. He would go on to put his company, the former food and tobacco conglomerate RJR Nabisco, up for sale. The resulting deal proved once and for all that the animal kingdom, the high school cafeteria, and the boardroom all run by the same set of rules. After the break, a battle between the queen bees and wannabes of Wall Street. Get in, loser. We're going shopping. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Before we start our story, I think we're all going to need a little snack. How about one of these from our favorite sponsor? Introducing Teddy Grahams. Okay, just kidding. We are not sponsored by Teddy Grahams, a girl can dream. 
But our story does start with a snack. Lots of snacks, actually. Back in the 1980s, processed food brands like Chips Ahoy, Wheat Thins, Saltines, Triscuits were all standard-issue lunchbox snacks, and they were all made by the same parent company, Nabisco. Nabisco was run by a Canadian businessman named Ross Johnson, who was anything but standard-issue. He was not out of the Harvard Business School mold, whatever that might be. Brian Burrow was a young business reporter at the time. For where else? The Wall Street Journal. And he went on to co-author the definitive account of the RJR deal, Barbarians at the Gate, which means he spent hours with Ross Johnson. Ross wore little bracelets. He, had, he wore his hair kind of uh, longish. He looked like a tennis pro. Ross Johnson started out as a roguish, somewhat flashy salesman. He wore open-collared shirts and gold chains that would glimmer on the golf course. He was one of those men, one of those people, for whom every sentence seemed like it was some type of joke. But the seemingly non-threatening, affable Johnson wasn't as nice as everyone thought. He was easygoing, not a hint of temper or unpleasantness about him. He was, after all, Canadian. But in fact, it was a studied act. Ross Johnson was no dummy. When his old company merged with Nabisco, he used his charm with the board and elbowed out the old CEO. When Nabisco was acquired by the tobacco giant R.J. Reynolds, Ross again was named CEO of the new combined company. But if Johnson was known for being a wolf in fun uncle's clothing, he had one other, perhaps even more defining characteristic. He freaking loved corporate perks. He was best known for what was called the RJR Air Force. It was a small fleet of planes, like 10 or 12 uh, corporate jets. They were always there for Ross and his top guys to go anywhere at any time. I mean, they used these jets like taxis. It wasn't just the fleet of jets at his disposal. Johnson had access to swanky corporate apartments. The company covered his membership to a dozen of the most exclusive members-only clubs across the U.S. And he also had a habit of keeping B-list celebrities and athletes not only nearby, but also on the company payroll. O.J. Simpson was paid $250,000 a year for appearances. Appearances which he never actually made. Despite all this corporate excess, RJR Nabisco was in a bit of a tough spot. The company represented the combination of two strong cash cow businesses, America's Big Cookie and Big Tobacco. And by the late 80s, Big Tobacco was facing pressure. But beyond the fight between the tobacco industry and the anti-smoking forces is the incontrovertible evidence that the habit of smoking is in steep decline in North America. RJR Nabisco was a publicly traded company, and that made it vulnerable. This was a, a period where people began looking askance at tobacco companies, and they began assigning lower values to tobacco companies based on the fact that the government was almost certainly going to come after tobacco companies in a big way, as they eventually did. Johnson could see this anti-smoking trend, and he was worried. For Johnson and CEOs who came of age in the 80s, it was really almost exclusively about your stock price. If your stock price was low, there's a good chance you could lose your company and your job. If RJR's stock price fell too low, 
outsiders could buy up all that stock, and Johnson might lose control of the company. But the company and its eccentric CEO had an unconventional idea. Five years and hundreds of millions of dollars in research and development. Ladies and gentlemen, you stand at the threshold of a new era in smoking and joint. Premier. RJR Nabisco was hard at work on a new, allegedly safer kind of cigarette called the Premier. It would be a huge commercial opportunity for RJR to respond to the anti-smoking messaging bombarding Americans. Its big innovation for smokers, the Premier with its carbon tip and proprietary flavor beads would be smokeless. In his eagerness to get RJR Nabisco's stock price up, Johnson had the product rushed into market testing. Well, of all the groups we tested, the response to Premier was just about uniform. They all said they tasted like shit. Like shit? Shit was the consensus, yes, sir. That was from the TV movie we mentioned at the top of the show. But it was the real feedback that RGR Nabisco got on the product. The company halted its testing after less than a year. So Johnson went back to the drawing board, searching for ways to get his stock price up. Ross Johnson ran essentially a Frankenstein's lab of, you know, you, you, one imagines all sorts of test tubes and everything with dry eyes coming of them. Every one of them, a concoction that would bring them to the promised land of a higher stock price. Around this time, Johnson met a frenemy, a man by the name of Henry Kravis. Kravis was, in a lot of ways, the very opposite of Ross Johnson. He was a Wall Street queen bee. That is the ugliest effing skirt I've ever seen. The Regina George to his Katie Heron, if you will. Although he grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you would never know it. Immaculately tailored suits, an oil back hair. He attended Northeastern boarding schools and was very much a product of them. Henry Kravis was a founding partner at KKR. Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts, and Co., an investment firm that was on fire in the late 80s. Henry is a tough guy. He is a hard man. He, uh, he was humorless, serious, focused, and seemingly missing a chain of DNA in which, you know, uh, charm is located. My guess is you could spend a weekend with him in the Hamptons and not hear him laugh or chuckle. I mean, that was the sense you got. So one evening in September of 1987, Henry Kravis invited Ross Johnson over to his palatial Park Avenue apartment. Johnson shuffled past the Renoirs and Monets hanging on the wall to join Kravis in an alcove just off of the dining room. They were discussing, what else? RJR's lagging stock price. Henry Kravis could be perhaps helpful with that. Back in the 60s, Kravis's firm had pioneered a profitable little financial maneuver known as a leveraged buyout. LBO if you're nasty. Everybody on Wall Street loved the LBO business. Why? An LBO could make you rich. Like, really rich. It's the type of thing that could take a mid-tier investment bank 
into, you know, the promised land. From the LBO, the concept was really developed to take care of estate problems. And uh, then it grew from that point in the, in the 60s, early 60s, I'm sorry, mid 60s. I'm going to spare you the pain of listening to dry old Henry Kravis explaining an LBO. Instead, we need an explainer for girlies by girlies. I'm Haley, a.k.a. Mrs. Dow Jones, and I am a financial pop star. Haley Sachs runs a very popular Instagram account focused on finance. Follow me at Mrs. Dow Jones if you need help getting rich, bitch. And she agreed to help explain the LBO concept to us in a way that actually makes sense. Private equity firms buy underperforming companies and then they queer eye them. Grooming is an evolution, honey. It's gorgeous, honey. It's Darwin, honey. So they basically do a makeover and then they sell them new and improved for profit. Instead of teaching straight guys about roasting cauliflower steaks or finally investing in an electric toothbrush, private equity firms perform a different kind of makeover on public companies. They'll buy them, and then, in classic Fab Five fashion, they'll zhuzh them up. Maybe they do some restructuring, maybe they name a new CEO, or try to cut costs. Everything they do is in the name of making the company more valuable than it was when they bought it. But unlike on Queer Eye, the capital, so like the money that they use to finance their makeovers doesn't come from Netflix. The overwhelming majority of these acquisitions is financed with debt. Financed with debt is just another way of saying take out a loan. And that's basically what an LBO is. You borrow money, you buy the company, you zhuzh it up and sell it for more. In this particular case, RJR Nabisco was the sad straight guy that Henry Kravis was going to make over. So, back at Henry Kravis's apartment, he suggests a leveraged buyout. Simply put, he could pull a queer eye with RJR Nabisco. He would buy it at more than $50 a share, giving Johnson and all the other shareholders a nice little profit. No more fussing with gross new cigarettes or fretting about the fate of big tobacco. But he just wasn't interested in an LBO. He didn't want any Henry Kravis's around telling him what to do or which priceless antique vases he could or couldn't buy for the pilot's lounge of the RJR aircraft hangar. A few days later, he called Kravis and said, essentially, thanks, but no thanks. But then, according to Brian Burrow, the winds changed on Wall Street. The fabulous crash of the stock market in 1987, which, while awful for you and me and anybody who owns stocks, basically created a massive bargain basement sale on American corporations. After the stock market crashed on October 19, 1987, known as Black Monday, stock prices fell across the board, and it was taking companies a long time to recover. Johnson didn't want RJR Nabisco to end up in the bargain bin. If it did, he could lose a lot more than his job. He'd lose his entire way of living. The clubs, the cars, the corporate apartments, and the buckskin suits. But he remembered that profitable little financial maneuver that Kravis had pitched him. Ross Johnson came up with the idea that the only way to cash everybody out, for everybody to do well, 
was for he and his management team to take RJR private. Johnson was going to do an LBO himself. Okay, this is exactly like that part in Mean Girls when Katie Heron threw a house party and invited everyone but Regina George. Hey, I'm having a small get-together at my house tomorrow night. Is Regina calling? <laughs> no, do you think I'm an idiot? Exactly like that. Ross Johnson planned to do an LBO, but a slightly remixed version called a management buyout. Basically, Johnson and his executive team would band together, work with a bank to secure massive funding, and buy RJR Nabisco. That way, Johnson could keep himself on as CEO. As Johnson himself put it, I don't want a bunch of nerds telling me whether to take a limo or not. Okay, same. I am literally always saying that. At the next board meeting, Ross Johnson stood at the head of a T-shaped conference table in Atlanta. He told the RJR board of directors that he wanted to buy the company at $75 per share, about 50% higher than its market value. In financial news, RJR Nabisco said its top managers are offering to buy the company for almost $17 billion. That would be the largest corporate takeover in history. But pulling it off wouldn't be so simple. You have to understand the rules here. When you launch a bid for your own company, it's called putting the company in play. Until the company is in play, in other words, until the company raises its hands and saying, we're for sale, it's considered not kosher to go after them. But if you start this process yourself, everybody and their mother in the world now has the right to go after you and your company. Ross Johnson was confident his deal would go through, but he had no idea what or who was coming for him. Ross Johnson is a tourist on the beach in Bali when there was an earthquake offshore and he looks up and there's a tidal wave coming at him and he's about to die. I mean, (laughs) Ross Johnson had no clue this was coming. After the break, Henry Kravis gets his Mean Girls revenge. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back, finance girlies. Before the break, we met Ross Johnson, the charismatic CEO of RGR Nabisco, the cookie tobacco behemoth with the middling stock price. Less than a year after his fancy dinner with Henry Kravis, the LBO king of New York, Ross Johnson began secretly preparing his own leveraged buyout of RJR. He basically put a for sale sign on the front lawn of his company and didn't expect anyone to show up for the open house. Alas, this proved stunningly 
historically naive of Ross. That's author and former Wall Street Journal reporter Brian Burrow again. Putting RJR Nabisco up for sale presented an opportunity, not just for the people who wanted to buy the company, but even for the people who were drafting up the deals. See, it takes a huge team of people to pull one of these off. Investment bankers to help secure financing, an army of lawyers to dot your I's and cross your T's, and other advisors working for you to make the purchase possible. And all that work pays. You've got to think of investment bankers, not as masters of the universe, but they are the elves in Santa's workshop. They're the little guys who make leverage buyout work. Why is that appealing? Because they get paid astronomical sums for everything. These little elves don't just make money when their deals end up being financially successful. Even if the deal ultimately ends up losing money, your army of elves is still probably going to have raked it in all in the form of fees. I mean, down to like copies, you know, if they make copies of a perspective, for all I know, it costs $150. I mean, the fees for investment bankers on a single deal typically would be north of 10 million, depending on the size of the deal. It became a fabulous business for all those who helped make it happen. All those little elves running around made hundreds of millions of dollars. And the numbers for the RJR deal were totally unprecedented. At Johnson's proposed price of $75 per share, RJR was valued at $17 billion. No LBO had ever been made at such a high price. When the press release announcing the deal went out, Wall Street went into a total frenzy. As I said earlier, the all-important board meeting is happening right now as we The Barbarians movie dramatized the real moment when news helicopters began circling the Atlanta skyscraper where Johnson had his office. It's the biggest thing in the world. It's as if Godzilla is walking down Park Avenue. There is no way you can ignore it. You must react. You must be part of this deal. Around 900 miles away in New York City, Henry Kravis was on the phone in his plush corner office. Kravis's secretary rushed into the room and silently passed him a note. RJR going private at $75 per share. Henry Kravis's first reaction is, you son of a bitch, this is my deal. Why didn't you come at me? She thinks she's going to have a party and not invite me? Who does she think she is? I like invented her, you know what I mean? Oh. Henry Kravis hung up the phone and his little elves almost immediately began to work on a competing bid for RJR Nabisco. Come hell or high water, Kravis wanted to win. And there was no way he'd let some long-haired, chain-wearing Canadian beat him at his own game. We begin tonight with an examination of something hot, the RJR Nabisco case that's now on the table. Every twist and turn in the ensuing takeover battle dominated the financial news cycle over the following weeks. Wall Street investment firms said it will offer to buy RJR Nabisco, the tobacco and food company, for $20,280,000,000. The offer came only four days after the managers of RJR Nabisco proposed taking over the company for $17 billion. In an effort to contain the mania, RJR's board decided to set a deadline for all best and final offers for the company. They were due at 5 p.m. on Friday, November 18th, 
1988. So essentially, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every skyscraper on Wall Street and, you know, the attendant landscape is awake, in shirt sleeves, on the phone, trying to make something happen. The bids were to be dropped off by hand at the office of Skadden Arps, the Midtown law firm that was representing RJR's board, which made things tricky for Johnson's team since they were stationed downtown. And so at 4.20 p.m. A limo load of investment bankers and lawyers got into a limo with Ross Johnson's big formal bid. They head up the East Side Highway and of course they get caught in traffic. Johnson's team calls them every five minutes to check on their progress. At 4.35, they're, you know, they're in traffic and, you know, it's a hard deadline. Five minutes later, they're still in traffic. By 4.45, they break out, they're on First Avenue. They're on the phone the whole way, giving Ross and everybody else an an update. But by 4.50, they're completely stuck, boxed in at 55th and First Avenue still half a mile from their destination. Ross is downtown saying, you sons of guns, they're gonna reject this, don't you know? The four attorneys got out of the car, clutching their briefcases and thousands of pages of paperwork, and sprinted all the way to 919 3rd Avenue. And they made it, but not before five o'clock. Stumbling into the conference room there at Skadden Arps with their deal. But it turns out it didn't matter. The deadline got pushed on a technicality. The way you've got to think of RJR Nabisco is it's a 12-round heavyweight prize fight that went 18 rounds. It literally went past the final deadline to another deadline. It was like a football player who runs through the end zone into the locker room. He just kept going and going. After six grueling weeks, all the bids were finally in. At the final hour, there were three offers on the table. One from Ross Johnson and his management team, one from Henry Kravis and his firm, and one from a third investment group led by the First Boston Corporation. But one of those bidders knew exactly what he was doing. There was a game being played here on Wall Street for $25 billion in 1988. Henry Kravis knew the rules back and forth. He had memorized the rules. Ross Johnson had never picked up the rule book. The winning bid, made by Kravis's firm, was massive. A whopping $24.8 billion, or about $109 per share. Because Kravis bought the company at such a high price, it was going to be incredibly difficult to turn much of a profit. But he got what he really wanted his place at the top of the LBO food chain. When Kravis took control of RGR Nabisco, Johnson was out. But don't cry for Ross Johnson. He pocketed around $50 million as a result of the takeover. His golden parachute landed in upper crusty Jupiter, Florida, where he quietly retired. At the time, the RGR Nabisco LBO was unprecedented but it opened the door to a level of greed even Wall Street hadn't imagined yet. Today, it's not uncommon to see LBOs of its size, or even bigger. Boom! Breaking news, Elon Musk offering to buy Twitter 
for $54.20 a share. If Elon Musk buys Twitter at his proposed share price, he would buy it at $44 billion. Big money. But as we know, on the flip side of every LBO is debt. A whole lot of borrowed money that needs to be paid back. Often, that means layoffs. Hundreds of thousands of retail workers have lost their jobs in the last 10 years as a result of LBOs. And when companies can't pay up, the whole business goes under and everybody loses their job. Such was the case with LBOs of big American retailers like Sears, Toys R Us, and Radio Shack, which all ended in bankruptcy. Basically, it's a gamble. But there's something other than the high-risk, high-reward math drawing Wall Street's finest to the LBO. Like with this Twitter deal. Elon Musk famously has beef with the company and with his portrayal in the media. In short, it's personal. But hey, that's Wall Street. RTR showed Wall Street never changes. It's all about fear and greed and ambition and hubris Wall Street is so much less about the numbers that intimidate you and me and my mom and your dad, who who will never understand this. It's about human emotions. It's about what people want. It's about, you know, how they go about getting the things that they most want in life that will change their lives. And RJR, I think 30 years later, is still held up as exhibit A of the most naked displays of all those emotions that many of us can ever recall seeing in American business. The world of finance has always felt incredibly cold and analytical to me. But in reality, nothing, no spreadsheet, no crisp new Patagonia vest can protect you from the torrent of your own emotions. And as much as economists love to think the financiers among us are rational actors, We are all susceptible to our whims, our feelings, our egos. And that, well, that I can understand. I love a human emotion. This show about all kinds of episodes from history is all about them. It's just that some of us are empowered to the point that our emotions could, say, shift the face of American industry. And that, that I have a harder time understanding. It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Laura Newcomb. Next week, we're heading down to SoCal, where a community of surfers once clashed with the American military. And we called them jarheads and were disrespectful. And there's a part of you that's excited that you know right in front of them you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, but you're you're getting away with it. The rest of our team are associate producers Julie Carley and Ramoy Phillip. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Kelly Prime, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger. 
Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Tocoliana by Coco Co, with music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. The TV movie you heard was from HBO's 1993 Barbarians at the Gate. And the book, Barbarians at the Gate, was co-written by Brian Burrow and John Hellyer. Special thanks to Jeffrey Hook at Johns Hopkins, Lauren Hirsch at The New York Times, Sam Rao, and to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, congratulations on the new kid, Ella Walsh, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. You can take that fake apology and shove it right up your hairy ah!